morning, church. You know, one of my favorite parts about being the body of Christ is that we get to be the body. We get to feel each other's pain. We get to support each other. And one of my favorite characteristics about our Lord is that He knows what it's like to suffer because He came down and He experienced betrayal and suffering and pain and death. So He is the God of all comfort. And He did that so that He could give us eternal life. It doesn't, doesn't mean that it's easier to go through the suffering now, but it does mean that that's where our hope is. So praise the Lord that He has taken care of our greatest need and praise the Lord that He's given us His Word so we can study today and learn more about Him and what He has for us today. So would you please open up to Romans chapter 11. Mike, should I go forward or backwards? All right, thank you. Romans chapter 11. We're going to finish chapter 11 and get into chapter 12 a little bit today. And today's message is entitled, How to Know God's Will. If you've been with us, you know that we're studying verse by verse through the book of Romans. And for the first eight chapters, Paul told us all about the gospel, the good news that Jesus died for our sins, so that whoever trusts in him will be forgiven and welcomed into heaven. But Romans chapters 9 through 11 have focused on the question, what about Israel? Here's what we've learned so far in Romans chapters 9, 10, and most of 11. First of all, the majority of Israel has not believed in Jesus. Therefore, the gospel message has gone out to the whole world, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. Many of the Gentiles have believed and become Christians, and God wants the Jews to be jealous of what the Gentiles have, to be jealous of that Christian faith, relationship with Jesus, the Messiah. And this is that jealousy evangelism we talked about last week so that the Jews, too, might also believe in Jesus and receive salvation themselves. In the meantime, although most of Israel has rejected Jesus, there remains a faithful remnant of Israel, an unknown percentage of Israelites who do believe in Jesus, and they're a part of God's church. Paul himself, the one who wrote the book of Romans, was a part of that faithful remnant, and today, there are Jews who believe in Jesus and who are also a part of this faithful remnant. Last week, we read that God is not done with Israel. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel under the fullness of the Gent- until the fullness of the Gentiles has Come in. So Paul says that unbelieving Israel is blinded to the truth, but there comes a day when God will once again focus on the nation of Israel, and many Israelites will become Christians. We know from other scriptures that this will happen during the seven year tribulation. Paul speaks about a future event called the rapture 
in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord." So this speaks of a future event that has not yet happened. When Jesus comes back to snatch away or rapture his church, all Christians, those who have already trusted in Jesus, will be supernaturally instantly taken out of this world, taken to heaven to be in the presence of God. I was talking with my kids today, and my son said, well, I'm glad it's going to be fast, because if it was a slow to heaven... I'd be really scared because I'm scared of heights. I thought that was a good point. Now, at this time of the rapture, all non-Christians, those who have not yet trusted in Jesus, they will be left behind, left on earth. Take a look at this timeline of the end. You're somewhere over here. Okay? The rapture marks the beginning of the end. Once the rapture happens, there will be seven years until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom. These seven years are called the tribulation. The second half of the tribulation is called the great tribulation. Now, during the tribulation, God will pour out his wrath on the earth. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 21, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So Jesus says the tribulation will be the worst time of suffering the earth has ever seen. And that if the tribulation wasn't shortened to only seven years, then nobody could have survived it or would survive it. You can read about many of these sufferings during the tribulation in Revelation chapters 6 through 18. But in summary, it speaks of wars and famine, diseases, earthquakes, and more. During the tribulation, more than half of the earth's population will die. And yet, in the midst of this horrific time, multitudes of people will finally trust in Jesus. And many of them will be Jews. So those who enter the tribulation, I want to be clear, those who enter the tribulation will have missed the rapture of the church because they had not trusted in Jesus. But even during the tribulation, if they repent and trust in Jesus, they will be saved. And because of the persecution during the tribulation, many of these tribulation saints, as we call them, will be put to death because of their faith. However, they're saved. They're going to heaven. I explain all of this for two reasons. First, I think it's important that we know what is coming so we can trust Jesus now and be spared of the wrath of God in the tribulation. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, starting in verse 9, For God did not appoint us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. 
If you trust in Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, then whether you live until the rapture comes or you die before the rapture happens, you'll live together with Jesus in heaven for all eternity. That's our hope. That's the hope of eternal life. The second reason I take time to explain all of this is so that we understand what Paul is talking about as we get into our passage today. In Romans chapter 11, verses 26 through 36, we read about God's plan for Israel. Verse 26 starts out, And all Israel will be saved. I want to stop right there for just a moment. Paul declares in the future, during the tribulation, Israel, for the most part, will finally see Jesus as their Messiah. They will finally trust Him as their Lord and Savior. It does not mean that every single Israelite will be saved. But Paul is saying that there's going to be a transition, whereas now many of the Jews don't believe, but then many of the Jews will believe. We might say that right now is the church age. Although there are still some Israelites coming to Christ, God is mostly focused on His church, not Israel. Whereas in the tribulation, God will mostly be focused on Israel. Although during the tribulation, there will be Gentiles coming to Christ as well. All who believe in Jesus during the tribulation will be saved by faith, just like the rest of us. Because we're all saved by faith, whether we're a Jew or a Gentile, whether we lived and died before or after the cross of Jesus, whether or not we believed in Jesus before or after the rapture of the church. It's always by faith, by believing God that he's going to do what he said. Now look back at verse 26. Paul says, And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them, when I take away their sins. Here Paul quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now, the Deliverer spoken of here speaks of Jesus. When it talks about Zion, Zion is a name for the city of Jerusalem. And so Isaiah declares that Jesus, the Deliverer, will come out of Jerusalem and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Now, Jacob had his name changed by God to what? Israel, that's right. So Jacob and Israel, same person. And Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob's sons were all the tribes of Israel. So that's what this prophecy is talking about. Paul quotes it so that we can remember God made a covenant with this nation, with this people. He promised to forgive their sin just like he forgives our sin when we put our faith in him. And so, verse 28, Paul says, Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of their fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. You see, because the Jews have rejected Jesus, those who have, they are in one sense an enemy. And yet, because they're part of the nation of Israel, God still loves them, and he has a covenant with those people. When God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to become the nation of Israel, he made them his special people. He didn't choose them because they were worthy. He didn't choose them because they were special. 
His choosing them is what made them special. They hadn't earned his favor, but God chose them by his grace. It was a gift that he chose them. They didn't earn it. And God continues to choose Israel by his grace. Therefore, even though most of Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God does not reject or abandon them. His gifts and his callings are irrevocable. And in the end, God will fulfill his promises with the nation of Israel. He will finish what he started with Israel. And this teaches us that God still has a future plan for Israel. The church has not replaced Israel. And if you want to take notes today, that's your first fill in the blank in your note sheet. The church has not replaced Israel. Therefore, we as Christians should love the Jews, pray for the Jews, and share the gospel with the Jews. We as Christians should love and support Israel as a nation. Now, I'm not saying that we necessarily support everything the nation does, but I am saying we should support Israel as a nation. Which, on a side note, the fact that Israel is a nation is nothing short of a miracle. Think about this. Israel was defeated by Rome when they conquered Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They'd rebelled against the Roman rule, and Rome came in, and they crushed them. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. That's also when they destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. For almost 2,000 years, Israelites lived all over the world as pilgrims, without a home, without a nation. Until 1948, after World War II, when the nation of Israel was established once again. It's incredible to me that for 2,000 years, they kept their national identity while they didn't have a nation. I would think that if I came from any country and my descendants lived in a new country for 2,000 years, we would just call them American, right? You're just a melting pot. But for 2,000 years, they kept their identity, they kept their culture, and now they're back in the promised land in Israel. But that's not all that God's going to do. God's not done with the nation of Israel. God will fulfill all his promises with Israel before the end. And so back to our text, Paul says in verse 30, For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their, through Israel's disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient. Israel has been disobedient. That through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. Again, that idea of jealousy evangelism, as Israel sees the Gentiles coming to Christ and saying, hey, that's my Savior, that's my Messiah, and wanting to trust in Jesus as well. Verse 32, For God has committed them to all disobedience, that he might have mercy on all. In other words, Paul explains that both Jews and Gentiles have been disobedient and sinful. Therefore, we are all in need of God's mercy. None of us are exempt. Paul said it this way in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is in control, and He has sovereignly orchestrated all things so that whether we are a Jew or a Gentile, we're all guilty. And we all need to receive Him as our Lord and Savior 
and we will be saved. Paul told us way back when we first started the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now in Romans 11, Paul changes gears. After three chapters of intense, detailed, even confusing verses, Paul says in verse 33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Paul speaks here about how God is omniscient. Omniscient, which means God knows all things. He has perfect and complete knowledge. Compare that with our imperfect and our incomplete knowledge. We cannot fully understand God's ways or His decisions. We cannot fully understand God's plan or His purposes. The Bible gives us enough to know God and to know how to get right with Him. Yet there are still many mysteries and questions we might have. All of our questions will not be answered this side of eternity. It's been said that what's over our head is still under God's feet. What's over our head is still under God's feet. I like that. You see, this is true concerning suffering or doctrine or knowledge. What we don't understand, over our head. What's too complicated for us to comprehend, over our head. Or what's too overwhelming in life for us to handle, it's over our head. We can rest in the fact that we don't need to understand We don't need to carry the weight. We just need to let go and surrender to Jesus. Oswald Chambers says it this way in a devotional. He says, A saint's life is in the hands of God like a bow and arrow in the hands of an archer. God is aiming at something the saint cannot see. And he stretches and strains. And every now and again the saint says, I cannot stand anymore. God does not heed. He goes on stretching till his purpose is in sight. Then he lets fly. Trust yourself in God's hands. I like that analogy. And notice the point of that analogy is not for us to understand what God is aiming at. That's not the purpose. Although, if you're anything like me, you really, really, really want to know. Right? But that's not the point. The point isn't to know what he's aiming at. The point is to know that We're in His hands. We can rest in that. You see, God's job is to understand all things and maintain control of all things. My job is to trust Him. Again, if you're like me, you like to play God's job. It's tempting. Even though we might not understand what's going on in a circumstance... We might not even understand some of the verses in the Bible. Even though from our perspective, everything in this crazy world seems out of control. Trust the one 
who is omniscient. Trust the one who loves you. Trust the one who died on the cross to pay for your sin. Trust the one who promises to make all things right in heaven one day. Because what's over our head, it's still under God's feet. It's nothing for him. He's got it. And he's got us, most importantly, in his hands. Now in Romans chapter 12, in verses 1 through 2, we read about being a living sacrifice. Paul continues in verse 1, then he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Before we get into this verse, I want us to take a step back and consider what Paul has talked about so far. You see, the first 11 chapters of Romans have all been about the gospel. He's explained that we're all sinners that we deserve God's righteous judgment in hell. Yet, God is not only righteous, but He is loving. So loving that He came down as a man, God the Son, Jesus, and He lived that perfect, sinless life that you and I have failed to live. Then, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, to pay our debt that we owed. Not only that, but He rose again three days later from the dead so that whoever trusts in Him will be justified. Justified. That means God credits you and I with righteousness. He credits us with our payments been paid in full. We don't owe anything else. That's what it means to be justified. Now, apart from salvation, when God looks at us, He sees our sin. He sees the external sins that you and I have committed, but He also sees the internal sins that we've thought about and dwelt on and maybe haven't spoken out loud, but it's in there. And God sees that. And that's why we're all guilty before the Lord. But if you've trusted in Jesus, you're clothed in His righteousness. We read about this idea in Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10. The prophet says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, if you've trusted in Jesus, then God no longer sees your sins. Not because he forgets, right? He's omniscient. He knows everything. But if you trusted in Jesus, he looks at you and he says, you're clean. You're righteous because you've been clothed in the perfect righteousness of God the Son, Jesus. That's amazing. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, then why not today? Paul told us in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Salvation is on the tip of the tongue. All you need to do is cry out to the Lord and say, Jesus, have mercy on me. Forgive me. Change me. And He will. Because He loves you. If you've done this, if you've trusted in Jesus, then you are saved. 
The work was finished on the cross. You're headed for heaven and nothing can separate you from God's love. Pretty amazing, right? Therefore, in light of all that God has done for you and for me, we ask the question, now what? Now what? What do we do? Now that I'm a Christian, what does God require of me? And that is the question that Paul begins to answer in Romans chapter 12. And so look with me again at verse 1. Paul says, I beseech you, or I beg of you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That idea, a living sacrifice, kind of bizarre sounding. Well, in the Old Testament, before Jesus came, God instructed the Israelites to offer animal sacrifices to atone or to temporarily cover their sin. We read in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where it says, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. So the idea is, our sin demands payment. Not just payment, but blood payment. In the Old Testament, under the law, Israel would constantly be sacrificing lambs, goats, and bulls because the people kept sinning. The sacrifices never ended. It was daily, continual. But this was all a picture pointing forward to the ultimate sacrifice that would one day come. When John the Baptist saw Jesus he cried out in John chapter 1, verse 29. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross wouldn't just temporarily cover sin. It would take it away, remove it, pay for it in full. And so Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice, the fulfillment of what all of those priestly sacrifices were pointing to in the Old Testament. So, his sacrifice paid for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. We don't pay for it ourselves if you've trusted in Jesus. If you don't trust in Jesus, then you pay for your own sin in hell. That's why Jesus came and died, to spare us of that, to give us a way out. He died for you, so now we live for him. And that's the idea that Paul is getting at when he calls us to present our bodies a living sacrifice. On your note sheet, the next section says, Now that I'm a Christian, God calls me to sacrificially live for Him. What does it mean to sacrificially live for Him? Well, it means we partake in what He approves and we abstain from what He doesn't. In other words, love God and love others. Do what Jesus would want you to do. But notice this important detail. This sacrificial living for Jesus is the result, not the means of our salvation. We are a living sacrifice because we are saved. We don't sacrificially live for Jesus in order to be saved. You see, we're saved by grace, which means God did the work. 
God gives us that righteousness. He clothes us in it the moment we put our faith in Him. We don't earn it. We just receive it. And so, Paul says back in Romans 3, 27 and 28, he says, Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not, be, is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. Our work and sacrificial living for the Lord is the appropriate response of being saved, but it is not the path in order to be saved. It's also important to note that this living sacrifice is a daily choice of surrender. It's a daily choice of surrender. You see, when the Israelites took their sacrificial lamb to the temple in the Old Testament, it was slain, the blood was poured out, and then depending on what kind of sacrifice it was, either the whole carcass or just certain pieces of it were burnt up and offered to the Lord. Now, nobody ever went back the next day and said, can I have my lamb back? I'm done sacrificing. I want my lamb back. They'd say, that, he's long gone, buddy. Right? He's gone. You can't have him back. It's over. It's been sacrificed. And yet, this idea of us being a living sacrifice, it's a continual surrender. Because metaphorically speaking, we climb up on that altar and we say, Lord, I'm yours. My life, my heart, everything that I am is yours. And that's the appropriate response to the fact that we're saved. And yet, it's a continual choice. Because at times, we climb down from that altar and we say, not today, Lord. Today's about me. Right now, I want to do me. Love Him? I don't, I don't want to do that. So we climb down off that altar. And so because we're called to be a living sacrifice, it's a daily choice where when we realize, you know what? I've been living for myself. I've climbed down off of that altar. I'm not sacrificing for the Lord. I'm sacrificing for me right now. We now can stop and say, Lord, forgive me. You've already paid for this sin of rebellion on the cross. But I'm coming to you now once again to say, Lord, take me, all of me. I'm yours again. My life is yours. And so we are to daily continually choose that to say it's not about me it's what jesus was talking about in luke chapter 9 verse 23 if anyone desires to come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me lord we're yours paul says that this living sacrifice is our reasonable service it's our reasonable service. Paul says, it's reasonable. He died for us. He gave us salvation. We have eternal life because of Him. Nothing can separate us from the love of God because of what He has done for us. And therefore, in response, it's reasonable for us to say, Lord, we're Yours. You died for us. We'll live for You. For this little teeny little thing we call life. It's gone. I'm going to give it to You. 
And he says, I'll give you eternity. It's never going to end. It's a good deal. It's our reasonable service. Other Bible translations, they call it, it's our worship to the Lord. I like that too. Because you see, our worship to the Lord is not just when we sing songs to the Lord. But our worship to the Lord is any time that we say, Lord, not what I want, but what you want. Any time that we have that heart of surrender that says, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you, that is worship. There might not even be a cool beat going on, but it's still worship. Because your heart says, Lord, it's you. I want to follow you. So back to our text. Paul calls us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And verse 2, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Notice that whether we're being conformed or transformed, we're changing. Becoming more like the world or more like Jesus. You've all heard the saying, you are what you eat. Well, if you feast on the world, You'll be conformed to this world. You'll think more and more like the world that you're listening to, that you're watching. On the other hand, if you feast on Jesus, the Word of God, you'll be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That is the next application for us on your note sheet. Now that I've become a Christian, God calls me to renew my mind by reading the Bible. Renew my mind. As we learn more about God and His Word through the Bible, the Holy Spirit transforms us to be more and more Christ-like. However, it's important that we understand just reading the Bible without being a living sacrifice, it won't do much. Just, living, just reading the Bible without being a living sacrifice is not going to change us. We can read, even memorize the Bible all day long. But if we don't actually do what it says, we're not going to be transformed. Paul instructs us to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice and to renew our minds through the Word of God. And if we do both, Paul says that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Living sacrifice Renew your mind in the Word, and you're going to know God's will. Now, a lot of people wonder, what is God's will for their life? What does God want me to do? I sit down for breakfast in the morning and I pray, Lord, what is your will for me? Regular or honey nut? What kind of Cheerios should I eat? And I don't want to blow this because if I make the wrong choice, then the world's going to blow up, right? everything's going to go wrong. Does God care? I don't think so. I don't think He cares. But what about those bigger decisions? Lord, what college do I go to? Lord, who do I marry? Is it him? Is it her? Who is it? Lord, what is your will for my life? I don't want to mess this up. Which job do I take? Do I stay in the job that I'm at? Or do I look for another? God, what is your will for me? Suddenly we're tempted to think that there's only one right answer. Here's what I think. Almost always, 
God doesn't care which decision we make so long as we honor him in that decision. Almost always, God doesn't care which decision we make as long as we honor him in that decision. You see, God's will is not so much about who we marry, but how we do marriage. Husbands are to love your wives as Christ loves the church. Wives are to respect their husbands. That's God's will for your marriage. God's will is not so much about which job to take, but how you honor God in that job. Are you a hard worker or only when the boss is looking? Can you have integrity in your job or does your job ask you to lie and deceive? Those are the things that God cares about. Now, you'll notice that I said almost always God doesn't care which decision we make. I think sometimes he has a preference and he wants to lead us. And that's when I turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 15. And it says, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful. That word translated rule means to umpire. We get the, the picture of a football game, and somebody commits a penalty, and they throw the flag. The game stops, and they deal with the penalty. Then they can move on with the rest of the game. And that's how the peace of God works in our hearts. If we're seeking the Lord, we're spending time with Him, living sacrificially for Him, being renewed by the reading of His Word, seeking Him in prayer, the peace of God can lead us. Sometimes that might be a pretty blatant thing. You sinned. And you lose that peace of God. You have that check in your heart and you realize, okay, Lord, you're right. Forgive me. I need to make this right. And then you go apologize at your kids who you just yelled at because they didn't clean their room like you told them to, right? Just me? Okay. So, you can lose the peace of God through sin. But you can also lose the peace of God because maybe it's the Holy Spirit guiding you to choose between two good options. You see, there have been times where I'm struggling to decide between two good biblical options in a decision. And I really, really want God to just tell me, Lord, which one? Regular honey nut. Tell me. I've got to know. And sometimes He will. I'll have peace about one decision and not about the other. And I'll say, okay, Lord, I'm going with this one. And Lord, if I'm, if I'm wrong, I trust you're going to change my direction and you're going cl- to shut that door. Other times, I really want to know, Lord, just tell me, A, B, or C, which one? And I got nothing. I've got peace about all three. And I hate it. I do. Sometimes I just wish God gave me, all right, step one, breathe. Okay, I think I can do this. You know, I'm freaking out a little bit. There's so many decisions. And yet sometimes God doesn't care. A, B, or C, he says, pick one. What do you want to do? Which job do you want to take? And just love him in that decision. That's what he cares about. That's what he wants for us. You see, often God gives us a lot of room to choose what we want. But we can be absolutely sure of this. God's will for your life, for my life, for everybody, God's will always 
lines up with Scripture. God's will always brings glory to Him. And God's will always gives us the peace of God. Always. Now, if you're at Walmart and you really want something, but you don't have the money for it, and you have peace that you can just steal it, good for you, but that's not the will of God because it doesn't line up with Scripture, right? God's will always lines up with Scripture. It will always bring glory to Him and will always have the peace of God, even though it might not make sense. I don't know why I have peace with this option, but I'm going to go with it. And I'm going to trust that God's going to use it. So the next time you're trying to discern God's will for your life, remember Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Because if you're continually giving yourself as a living sacrifice for Jesus, and you're renewing your mind by reading and obeying the Bible, then pat yourself on the back. You're doing the will of God. You figured it out. That is God's will for your life right now. Don't stress. Grab that bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios and praise the Lord for how good it tastes. Much better than regular. Now, as we close in prayer, I want to re-surrender. I want to metaphorically climb back up on that altar and say, Lord, today's a new day. I'm rebellious at heart. I want to give my life to you again. I want to give my desires over to you my hopes and my dreams to you, all of my decisions to you. And I invite you to join me in that prayer. Maybe it's the first time you've ever prayed such a prayer that says, Lord, I'm yours. I might not understand everything. I might be freaking out a little bit, but I'm yours. Maybe this is the 10,000th time that you're saying, Lord, I'm yours. But would you join me as we cry out to the Lord and say, God, we're nothing, and yet you loved us, died for us, and we're going to live for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you loved us enough to come and live the perfect life that we could not. And then you died on the cross to pay for our sin so that anyone who believes in you will have eternal life. They'll be stamped as righteous. They'll be forgiven. God, thank you for the gift of your salvation. God, if anybody here has never put their faith in you, they've never said, Lord, I'm yours. God, I pray they would do that right now. And Lord, for all of us, we look to you. We look at all that you have done. We look at your sacrifices for us and we say, Lord, how could we not but offer everything we have? I don't feel like it's much, Lord. I don't feel like I have much to offer. But Lord, you take us as we are. And so, Lord, we cry out to you and say, Lord, I'm yours. We are yours. Those things that are burdening our heart, Lord, they're yours. God, those things that I really wrestle with in my mind, Lord, they're yours. Lord, every relationship, every circumstance, every hope that we have, God, we give it to you. 
Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would fill us afresh, that you would continue the work of changing our hearts, changing our desires to be more and more like you. Because, Lord, we know that we can't sacrifice ourselves in our own strength. It's got to be you, Lord, your Holy Spirit doing that work. And so, God, would you continue that work, continue to use us for your kingdom and for your glory. And, God, would you guide us and lead us in obeying and following your will to live for you and be renewed through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together. Amen. Thank you so much for coming today. If we can pray with you or encourage you, there's men and women up front that would love to do so. Otherwise, on your way out, say hi to somebody else. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day.